Welcome to the Traveling On Radio Show, your premier source for travel news and information, featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, the Traveling On Radio Show. Well, hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on the Traveling On Radio Show, the show that celebrates responsible travel, culture, and heritage. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we are so pleased to be broadcasting from Vancouver, the city hosting the 2010 Winter Olympic Games. And after a lot of delays, weather delays, we are here. Yes, we're finally out of a snowpocalypse territory, Washington, <laughs> D.C., in the Mid-Atlantic region. And we had our share of difficulties having to switch airports, uh, flying out of Washington, and then switching over to Baltimore. But we're finally here, and we're here to enjoy the excitement, and we're pleased to give you a flavor of the energy here. First up, securing the Canadian wilderness and protecting humans and bears alike are two of the big security challenges for the Olympics. Chris Doyle of the British Columbia Ministry of Environment will talk to us about the challenges the wilderness poses for these games and visitors alike. Then our good friend, travel philosopher Bob Fisher, will join us to offer a cultural perspective of our northern neighbor and explain why Vancouver is the perfect hub for the 2010 Winter Olympics. Finally, in honor of Black History Month, we are pleased to introduce you to documentary film producer Gregory Cook, who will join us to talk about his newest film projects, Invisible Warriors, African-American Women During World War II, and Chocolate Soldiers from the USA. We welcome your comments and questions at any time. You can email us at comments at travelnradio.com. And, you know, in the coming weeks, as you, as you guys have already heard, we are undergoing a transition. We are actually going to change the name of our show to a new name, World Footprints. And so by mid-March, We'll be broadcasting under the banner of World Footprints Radio. And our change to World Footprints is really an acknowledgement of our celebration of responsible travel, culture, and heritage. The name World Footprints communicates our values of sustainability, global citizenship, travel philanthropy, and volunteerism. And we are so excited that you'll be joining us on our journey to leave positive footprints and build positive legacies one step at a time. So stay tuned. As you know, Vancouver is the host city of the 2010 Games. But did you know that 57 of the 86 medal contests will take place in Whistler, some 90 minutes north of Vancouver, where 17,000 visitors are gathering each day during the Games? Not only are the security challenges different in the vast Canadian backcountry, but there are unique challenges as well, with so many people invading the natural habitat for many animals, including black bears and grizzly bears. Chris Doyle, a conservation officer with the Compl- Division of the British Columbia Ministry of Environment joins us now to talk about the challenges that the wilderness poses for these games and visitors alike. Chris, welcome. Thank you. These must be be pretty exciting times and busy times for you as the Olympics are underway in British Columbia. How are things going right now? Uh, Things are going smoothly for us. We have uh, a number of officers deployed at uh, doing various uh, backcountry uh, security functions with the military at uh, certain venues. And as well, we have a number of officers uh, uh, that are uh, able to respond to any human-wildlife conflicts that may emerge during the Games. Is there an area, Chris, that uh, you're most concerned uh, about, like Whistler? You know, I know bears are very prevalent in uh, in the Whistler area. 
Uh, yeah, Whistler definitely is a uh, high human-bear conflict uh, zone, and uh, during the months when bears are typically out of the dens, which is usually uh, April through December, uh, we receive a, a significant number of human-wildlife conflicts in Whistler. Uh, fortunately, the winter games occur when bears are usually in their dens, which is uh, now. And uh, occasionally we do have a bear that may emerge from the den or some bears that uh, won't den at all for various reasons. But so far this year, uh, there's been no reported bear activity in the Whistler area since uh, early December. Um, there are other wild animals that are around venues. Uh, yesterday there was a bobcat that uh, ran across the downhill run. Oh as well, we have uh, uh, cougars and coyotes and and wolves that also live in the Whistler area. Hmm. Now, as uh, you t alluded to, uh, the conservation officers are really part of the integrated security for these games. Uh, give us a sense about the special role you and your colleagues are playing in securing the games. Uh, the security uh, function of our service is uh, primarily focused on doing uh, backcountry security patrols with the, the uh, Canadian Forces military personnel. Uh, so we have officers that are around uh, venues in Whistler and in North Vancouver uh, 24 hours a day, um, and they're doing snowmobile patrols to secure the perimeters of, uh, of those venues. Mm -hmm. Now, the, um, you know, as, you, as we kind of talked about and as you alluded, your focus will be kind of on the backcountry and, um, you know, including the environs of, of Whistler. Are there any particular challenges that you and your fellow conservation officers face during these games? Um, I mean, the challenges uh, that the backcountry security uh, function is will face are primarily due to uh, geography and weather, uh, but uh, conservation officers are very familiar with traveling in uh, all kinds of rugged terrain and different weather conditions. So. We're fairly comfortable out there, um, and uh, and obviously uh, ready to meet whatever challenges emerge. And as far as our our section that is uh, more in the front country, doing the response to human wildlife conflict, um, we're not anticipating uh, too many conflicts. But the challenges we'll see if we need to respond to a conflict is obviously uh, you know the large numbers of people that may be around, as well as uh, is accessing those areas uh, due to uh, an increase in uh, uh, traffic and potential uh, delays on, on roads. Mm -hmm. And I know the uh, Conservation Corps is charged with protecting three of the what's called Sea to Sky Olympic venues, uh, Whistler being one that we, we talked about. Uh, but tell us about the, the others. Uh, the three uh, areas where we have officers doing backcountry patrols are Cypress Mountain, which is in North Vancouver uh, on the North Shore, and that's the uh, site of the, the uh, freestyle skiing and snowboarding events. Mm -hmm. um, our second uh, patrol area is around the Whistler Athletes Village, and the third patrol area is around the uh, Callahan Valley, the Whistler Olympic Park area, where all the Nordic events and ski jumping events will take place. Now, with um, so many people coming on average 17,000 a day for the Alpine events in, in, in Whistler, Whistler is known for being 
a top skiing destination, then it's used to having people there for, for some of the events, and you've had a number of years to kind of break in the venues. How are these crowds challenging uh, and perhaps stretching uh, the resources that you have there? Uh, I guess, the, you know, the large numbers of people, when you have that many people around, the, uh, the I guess the risk of interaction with wildlife would increase slightly uh, just because there are more people potentially interacting uh, with wildlife in the, in the wildlife, uh, what would typically be their home environment. Uh, and, but we do see that throughout the year in Whistler. Uh, people are recreating on the mountain, um, interacting with bears. Uh, bears and people uh, can get quite close to each other uh, in Whistler. Um, so it, it's probably nothing more more unusual than the uh, that with this time of year with the winter, mm-hmm. except that some of those uh, species of wildlife are less likely to be around. Uh, which is mainly bears, and they're hopefully in their den. Um, some bears may emerge from the den for a brief period of time in the winter, and so with the, with the increased uh, traffic around the mountain, you know, we may see uh, some interaction. Uh, may, most likely would like just be a sighting of uh, somebody seeing a bear. On the mountains. We are speaking with Chris Doyle of uh, the BC Ministry of Environment, a conservation officer with them, to talk about some of the challenges in securing the backcountry during these Olympic Games. And I, I know, you know, one of the, the things that your team, you and your team are doing uh, to kind of address the, the animal human uh, conflict or any, any potential conflict. Um, is providing education, so there's an educational component to your security mission. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, what you're doing to educate the, the public uh, when they do see a bear or, or come close to a bear and, and, uh, and how that is uh, maintaining safety for both the animals and, uh, and humans. Well, we've, uh, we sit on a number of working groups, uh, involving community, uh, groups and non-government organizations and municipal partners and, uh, Bannock as well and have done for a number of years in the Whistler area. And the goal is to, uh, make Whistler a bear smart community. Um, and so the focus is on preventing human wildlife conflicts from occurring, uh, by addressing the root causes of human wildlife conflicts, which unfortunately um, can be from poor attractant management, such as the way uh, garbage is managed. Mm-hmm. So we've been working uh, quite hard in Whistler for a number of years to address those issues. And Whistler, uh, the community of Whistler, has dedicated uh, a significant amount of resources to making their community uh, safer for people and bears, uh, both by uh, addressing the attractant issue, implementing a... Uh, a bear-resistant and bear-proof waste management system. Um, as well, there is ongoing education. Um, we have a, a community group in Whistler, the Get Bear Smart Society, that uh, spends a, a huge amount of resources uh, getting the word out to the public on how to interact with bears uh, safely. Mm-hmm. And as well, we've been doing some research on how to uh, deter bears from coming into the community and uh, accessing non-natural food sources uh, such as garbage and so uh, we'll do that by having officers respond to 
two bears that have uh, entered the community and uh, try and move those bears away using uh, non-lethal deterrents. And, you know, Chris, a lot of the, the tips and the educational um, information you're providing are, you know, this isn't a seasonal tip. These aren't seasonal tips. And, you know, a couple of years ago, Ian and I uh, took a Canadian Rocky train trip, and we actually went hiking in uh, Lake Louise. And our guide there told us, you know, if you see a bear, um, make sure that, you know, stay outside of the bubble, something that he called the bubble. And, and so can you kind of describe to our listeners what they should do if they do come in contact uh, with the bear, and particularly a bear cub, which is, you know, uh, most people would, you know, they're cuddly little creatures, and, and most people might be tempted to, to pet or to feed. Tell yeah, us the no-nos. <laughs> approaching bears uh, is definitely not a good idea, and feeding bears or other dangerous wildlife in British Columbia is an offense. Um, it's it's an offense under the Provincial Wildlife Act to feed dangerous wildlife, and persons that do so uh, will likely get charged uh, for doing that. Um, the best thing to do if you encounter a bear is to make your presence known to the bear uh, and also to back away slowly um, and uh, not make any sudden movements, uh, put your hands in the air, uh, just kind of talk calmly to the bear and back away slowly. And in most cases, uh, the bear will will uh, continue on doing its own thing. Uh, if you approach a bear or feed a bear, you're going to get a different result with that animal. It may become aggressive. Um, there are encounters, uh, surprise encounters with bears where bears are acting in a defensive manner, um, and they may come at a person or... Uh, on a very rare occasion, may make contact with a person. Mm. So for hikers, we'll also uh, make a recommendation that they carry a bear spray or pepper spray with them while they're hiking in the woods, mm-hmm. and that's uh, proven to be a good deterrent if a bear does approach a person um, that can be deployed. But to avoid encounters in general, especially around our communities, it's it's mainly how we manage food and garbage and uh, other attractants around our homes and communities and campsites that uh, will limit the amount of interactions between bears and people. That's primarily why bears are interested in people. It's for the food and waste that they generate rather than the person themselves. Chris, I'm curious, with with so many thousands of people gathered at uh, the venues, uh, many of the alpine venues, and you've kind of alluded to this when uh, there have been some animal sightings on, on, on some of the runs, how concerned should the visiting public be about coming in contact with animals, particularly when there are lots of people uh, gathered at some of these events. Is, is, is that a real uh, concern? Generally speaking, uh, this time of year there's not a lot of concern, and, mm-hmm. and the more people there are together in one group, the safer they are. Um, obviously we're concerned You know, if an animal does get onto a downhill ski run, for instance, yesterday. The bobcat ran across the downhill um, while there was a training session on. So you're, you're talking about a fairly large animal where you have skiers coming down uh, at high rates of speed. So the, the concern in that case, obviously, is a, a collision with the animal. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And we've had similar issues around the sliding center in the fall where the bobsled and luge uh, tracks are with bears grazing nearby while athletes were in training. And so occasionally those bears would cro- actually cross the track or go up on the track. Mm-hmm. So we spent some time there hazing the bears away. And the primary goal there was to ensure there was no collisions, obviously, between uh, athletes in training and, and the wildlife but in general, uh, if people are visiting Whistler this time of year, their chances of encounter with uh, a bear or a cougar or a coyote or a bobcat or any other animal is uh, a fairly low risk. Um, chances are if somebody's visiting Whistler in the spring, summer, or fall, they will see a bear or potentially many bears. Mm. Curious, how do you haze a bear away? What, what does that in- entail? Uh, we'll use a number of tactics, and, and one of them is simply our officer presence, we call it, where we'll approach a bear and uh, uh, slowly, um, but but definitely moving towards the animal. And the black bears can be intimidated by that, and that will move them off. We'll also use noisemakers, which are projectiles that we can shoot out of uh, various firearms that basically uh, go towards the bear and then explode and make a a noise that scares the bear away and occasionally we'll use uh, some pain deterrents such as uh, rubber bullets or beanbag rounds which mm. simply uh, don't cause any uh, kind of permanent injury to the bear just uh, a, a little bit of a pain stimulus to get that bear moving and uh, in the past we've also uh, used some dogs to uh, scare the bears away as well and, and bears are generally deterred also, you know, just by a lot of uh, loud noises. And so if there are crowds of people, uh, or at bears or any wildlife, I mean, it, uh, I think loud noises and, and just a large crowd would be a natural deterrent as well. Is that correct? That is correct. But bears, uh, particularly in Whistler, do get habituated to people and noises and uh, congested areas. And so... Unfortunately, you know, we do have uh, uh, incidents where bears will come right into Whistler Village uh, where it's crowded with people uh, day and night. And uh, mm. so there is uh, some potential risk uh, when we get a large number of people and a wild animal uh, in the same area, which occasionally can be a confined space. So, so they do get habituated to that. But uh, once again, fortunately, in the winter, most of them are happily sleeping in their dens and we were fortunate this fall that uh, we had an exceptional berry crop so the bears went into den uh, in very good condition good deal now chris with uh, the games going on and this also being work time for you as well and 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 i'm sure you're going to be putting in a lot of hours on uh, your duties schedules will you have any time to enjoy the games at all I certainly plan on it. Uh, On my uh, off time, I have uh, some tickets to events that uh, I'm hoping to uh, take my family to and and, uh, enjoy the experience of the Olympic Games. Is there a particular sport, Chris, that you're really uh, anxious about or excited about? Uh, Well, we we really enjoy all the winter sports, so we have uh, we're uh, interested in seeing what's going on in the mountains as well as uh, taking in a couple of hockey games. Oh, good deal. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Chris Doyle, Conservation Officer with the British Columbia Ministry of the Environment. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you.
When we come back, we'll be speaking to travel journalist and Canadian Bob Fisher, who will talk about Vancouver as a perfect hub for the Winter Olympics. You're listening to the Traveling On Radio Show, and we'll see you right after the break. Joel Klein catches a 7 o'clock train after his evening CPR class at the American Red Cross. Ron Garrett is on the same train. He's had a rough day and doesn't feel like himself. Until he feels the sudden tightness in his chest, Ron never thought he'd actually have a heart attack. Until Joel is administering CPR, he never thought he'd actually save a life. When you train with the Red Cross, you change a life. Starting with your own. Call 1-800-RED-CROSS or visit redcross.org to learn about life-changing opportunities in your area. This is President Barack Obama. In the story of America, the greatest chapters are moments of challenge, when we see people serving their country and one another, volunteers who step forward into hospital corridors and church basements, along levees and fire lines. And the next chapter is yours to help write. Sign up to volunteer at usaservice.org. That's usaservice.org. Let's renew America together. A message from Renew America Together, brought to you by the Ad Council. Now, more of the Traveling On Radio Show. On one of our trips, we actually formed a friendship with a like-minded soul, philosopher, cultural anthropologist, and fellow travel journalist Bob Fisher, our good friend from Canada. Like us, Bob seeks a higher understanding about a destination and transformative travel experiences, and we wanted to speak to Bob as the world spotlight shines on Canada and Vancouver because of the Winter Games to better understand the rich history and culture of our northern neighbor. Welcome, Bob. Why is Vancouver the ideal hub destination? for the Winter Olympics? Well, for a number of reasons, and a lot of it has to do with uh, what I often say, landscape shapes culture. Vancouver, the city of Vancouver, first of all, is, is beautiful. It's absolutely splendid, as the media who are arriving there today, as a matter of fact, are discovering. But it's also in a very cohesive, coherent part of the lower mainland of British Columbia, surrounded by beautiful mountains, looking out to a harbor that is absolutely stunning, and then looking back to the coastal mountains as well. But it's a, it's a great hub destination because everything, especially for the upcoming Olympics, are within easy reach. Aside from that, Vancouver is a major arts capital, and it's in terms of gastronomy and people who like culinary travel, it is, it's, it's one of the best. Mm-hmm. You know, Vancouver is, um, people joke about this, but uh, Canadians refer to Vancouver as Lotus Land. And uh, in part because it's a Pacific Northwest culture. And, and the, man, the mindset that goes with that, a very laid-back kind of lifestyle, it's a Pacific Rim city, and and I, and I mustn't forget um, uh, a really important green tourism destination. And and we understand too that these Olympics are um, really a green Olympics, and and I know there's a lot of uh, uh, a lot of uh, thought that that's gone into creating um, you know some of the the structures, um, uh, namely the uh, 
Athletes Village, which will be torn down after the Olympics or modules right now, but after the Olympics will be torn down and distributed throughout um, communities and used as as uh, lower income housing, which I think is spectacular. Yes, that's fantastic. And, um, you know, British Columbia and the Lower Main Outland and Vancouver have always been um, very attuned to sustainability. Sustainability mm-hmm. in, in their human culture, sustainability in the in terms of the urban design of the city and the urban redevelopment, which since the advent, they, since they won the, the bid to the Olympics, has continued um, apace. And it, but it is also a very pedestrian-friendly city. And you mentioned the, um, the Athletes Village, which are currently modules. And, and yes, they will find a second really important home away from home, if you like, because they will be distributed throughout areas of British Columbia where low-income housing is a necessity. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, circling back to Vancouver as a, as a cultural hub, I understand that there is going to be a cultural Olympiad. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, many, I think many cities, I remember Los Angeles doing this um, when they had the Summer Olympics, but um, when you have so many people coming for a particular event, um, you get a lot of interest in what else is there here. And the Cultural Olympiad, for example, is a co-event that is occurring at the same time. So especially for people who come for the Olympics, they're not just going to be in um, some village where all there is to do is to see sports. They're going to, there will be concerts, there will be dance troops coming from all over the place, especially, and I should mention the First Nations people and, and their role in this. Um, the art galleries are putting on uh, wonderful new exhibits. So there's the full range of the cultural Olympiad. And what I think is, is interesting about even calling it the cultural Olympiad is that here again, this is what British Columbia and Vancouver do extremely well. They show the best of human achievement. Mm-hmm. And... The Winter Olympics there, of course, are going to be the best in human achievement in the winter sports, but now you're going to have also the best of human achievement in the arts and music and culture and dance and all the rest. Now, Bob, when the world thinks of Vancouver today, it's truly a multicultural city. It's come quite a ways from its English-British origins to where it is today with Asian with people from all over the world, which is a function of long-standing immigration policies in Canada. Talk to us about that aspect of Vancouver and Canada in general and, and, and how it makes Canada different from what people may think of uh, North America and America, as, as some often kind of relate Canada to, to being the 51st state. Talk to us about that. Well, it, it's 
it's a complicated issue, but it's, it's a very complex issue as well. You have to realize, first of all, there's something called the Laurentian School of Canadian History. Mm-hmm. Canada evolved from east to west, from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And following the St. Lawrence Seaway and the Great Lakes, et cetera, et cetera. But when they get to the end of Lake Superior, they came to a dead end. At which point, our first Prime Minister, Sir John A. Macdonald, built what we call the National Dream, the transcontinental railway that went all the way to the West Coast. This is what ultimately united Canada and made Canada into more than a colony. But... What is important is, uh, as I said, it's a Vancouver is a Pacific Rim country. Uh, I'm sorry, a Pacific Rim city, and it it was very much a frontier experience. And part of the reason it was a frontier experience was because it was so difficult to get there, because you have the uh, the, the, the prairies in between, and then you have these mountain ranges. And so, and that's also why Vancouver is a relatively very young city. Um, 1849 was the first time that the, the colony of Vancouver Island was established. But what is important here as well is the the fact that there is um, a whole different mindset in terms of the origins of the people, and especially the indigenous people who first Mm -hmm. populated the area. This was quintessential fur trading, uh, fishing, obviously, salmon, the salmon runs are famous in the Vancouver area. So in terms of the, the colonial powers in Europe at the time, uh, Vancouver and Vancouver Island and lower mainland British Columbia were a long way away. But once they got there, and by the way, one of the first to get there was a guy by the name of Captain James Cook. Hmm. And once they got there, they discovered why this was such an ecologically rich resource-based part of North America. And what is especially important is that 49th parallel and once that transcontinental railway was built and linked Atlantic to Pacific you now had Canada and then you had a Canadian culture that was very British background the the capital of British Columbia is the city of Victoria on Vancouver Island and why is it called Victoria well because it was named after Queen Victoria. Mm-hmm. And I've been there. It's a, an incredibly beautiful place. Beautiful did island. Did you have tea at the Empress? You know, I don't believe I did. Actually, it was it was a long time ago, and I would date myself unfairly if I if I told you when that uh, that visit occurred the last time. Uh, but uh, no, I don't. I don't believe uh, I did. But I did walk through. I remember beautiful gardens and and walking gardens. Yes. That's where you went. Yes. Yep. It's one of the most famous. And, and you know, for, for people interested in horticultural travel, travel, Vancouver, of course, because of its mild climate, and many Canadians, by the way, retire to the West Coast, to Vancouver and to Vancouver Island. Mm. That's also another reason why it's sort of referred to as Lotus Land. 
Now, um, I want to circle back to the First Nations people. Mm-hmm. You, you've referenced them uh, a few times and talk about um, their role in, in the Olympics and, and, you know, how they will be included, but also uh, ask you about um, how they are celebrating and if this is a, a matter of celebration, even in your region, you're located in Toronto. Yes. Um, but I know that there there is a... Uh, First Nations um, Council uh, in your province as well. Nationally, are the First Nations people celebrating this, and and how will they be included in the Olympics? Well, I suspect, and we're all sitting on the edge of our seat waiting to see that opening ceremony because we already there are already many hints that the First Nations people of Canada and of British Columbia especially, are going to play a prominent role in the opening ceremony. Um, There are a number of reasons for this. Uh, You have to understand that British Columbia, the whole area of British Columbia, um, because it was the migratory route for the indigenous people that came across the Bering Strait, Um, but uh, there were three prominent First Nation groups of the Pacific Northwest. And I won't get into all the names of them. One of my favorites is the Haida, and they live on the Queen Charlotte Islands, and and I highly recommend that they are the ones that are most known for the the very famous totem poles. Mm. In Canada in general, um, in the United States you talk about Native Americans. In Canada we call them First Nations. We also have uh, an overall organization that's called the Assembly of First Nations. And in each province or territory in Canada, there are also uh, secondary organizations, and they're all very cohesive and they're all working together. And so um, I know that the Assembly of First Nations, and I know that the, the First Nations people uh, in uh, the lower, lower mainland of British Columbia, have already uh, they were there right from the beginning when the bid was announced that Vancouver had won the Olympics, and we're saying this is a moment for us, especially as West Coast um, Indigenous people, to raise awareness worldwide, worldwide about all indigenous people, but especially of the really unique culture, uh, the really unique marine-based culture as opposed to the prairie-based culture of the First Nations people in British Columbia. So I think what you're going to see as you watch the Olympics and as, as you and Ian um, and I'm imagining you wandering through the streets of Vancouver, looking at all these great sites. You're going to you're going to learn an awful lot. We are all going to learn an awful lot about First Nations people anywhere in the world, but especially in this area. 
Bob, in our closing minutes with you, as we've touched on the First Nations, one of the unique things about Canada and its relations to to, to the First Nations versus the American relationship with uh, Native Americans is that the Canadians use treaties. In America, we fought Indian wars, and I think that that points to an interesting contrast between these uh, two two countries. Talk to us a little bit about that in our time with you. Well, you know, um, everything that happened to the indigenous people in North America is obviously, as you and I both know, was not always a good news story. Mm-hmm. And and a professor that I um, heard speak recently, I, I, and I spoke to him afterwards, and I said, what is the essential difference historically between uh, how um, Aboriginal people were treated in the United States of America versus what was then the, the colony, a British colony of Canada. And he said, in some ways, it's quite simple. Um, in the United States, they, they did their best to uh, wipe as many out as possible. I'm thinking of the Calusa in Florida, for example. In Canada, we simply tricked them. We, uh, we took their land. We, we arranged treaties through the crown, the British crown, and they were unfair. Now, since that time, as we know, um, Native American people, First Nations people in Canada, have come a long way to regaining their collective sense of themselves, of their culture, of their art forms, and of their very ecological um, long, long history of, uh, of, of environmentally friendly ways of living with the land. Mm-hmm. And I think this is also going to be seen at the Vancouver Olympics, because if you go to Vancouver itself, you can't help but notice that you are surrounded by nature par excellence. Mm. Well, Bob Fisher joining us from Toronto, philosopher, cultural anthropologist, fellow travel journalist, and very good friend. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Tonya, and thank you, Ian, and it's been wonderful. Thank you, Bob. When we come back, we'll be joined by documentary film producer Gregory Cook and learn about his newest film projects and his mission to educate. The Traveling On Radio Show continues after this. Every hour of every day, an American is diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. MS typically strikes between the ages of 16 and 50 when people are building careers and raising families. Today, there is no known cause or cure for MS. To learn more about this unpredictable disease, to volunteer, or to make a contribution to this important mission, please call 1-800-FIGHT-MS. You can make a difference by helping us stop this devastating disease. Please call one 800 Fight MS today. Thank you. Would it be crazy if you packed your bags and left for a week, a month, a year? What if you left for two years? What if you were going far away to help in a village on the edge of the Gobi Desert? To spend time with people the rest of the world only reads about? To teach children and learn a thing or two about yourself? Would that be crazy? Peace Corps. Life is calling. 
how far will you go? To find out more, call 1-800-424-8580 or visit PeaceCorps.gov. Well, he moved early. That's going to draw the yellow flag. Offsides, number 72, five yards. Check out this fan leaving the game. He's headed straight up the middle and right into a sobriety checkpoint. Let's see how he handles it. No, officer. I haven't been drinking. I'm the designated driver. Upon further review, this fan made the right call by being a designated driver. Sign up to be the designated driver at the stadium and always buckle up. You could follow your favorite NFL team to the Super Bowl. Provided as a public service by the station at Team Coalition. This is the Travel and On Radio Show, bringing you a world of travel news and information. Once again, let's join your hosts, Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Gregory Cook is the driving force behind two documentaries, Invisible Warriors, African-American Women in World War II, and Chocolate Soldiers from the USA. Fueled by his passion for historical knowledge about African-Americans, Gregory has devoted much of his adult life to traveling England, European battlefields, and other places of historic significance where black troops participated in the war effort. We had the pleasure of meeting Gregory during a newsmaker conference about chocolate soldiers that Tanya moderated at the National Press Club. He joins us today to talk about his film projects, his research, and his missions to educate. Gregory, welcome. Thank you. Tell us about Chocolate Soldiers from the USA. As I understand, this was really a, a film to chronicle the lives of several African-American soldiers who were stationed in the U.K. during World War II. And I know a lot of your research was conducted overseas. Tell us about some of your travels and what you learned along the way. Chocolate Soldiers from the USA actually came as a result of my travels, uh, I guess, about 22 years ago. Uh, I was uh, in Belgium in Bastogne, uh, which was the focal point of the Battle of the Bulge during World War II. And so I went into a museum, and, and there I saw black soldiers in the diorama. Um, it was the first time I had ever seen black soldiers in, depicted in the context of World War II. And quite frankly, I had never thought about it before. But when I saw these soldiers, it, it, uh, it's kind of like a light bulb went off over my head. And I started doing research, and this whole world opened up to me, and I suddenly realized that um, African Americans had participated in every war this country has ever had, and they had played uh, a significant role in uh, World War II. Actually, more than one million African Americans were in the military during World War II. Mm-hmm. And what I found as a result of that was that we had, we as African Americans had largely been elim- eliminated from um, the historical records or mainstream texts about, in discussion about World War II. And when we were, when we are or were talked about, it was always like we were on the fringes. And so as a result of my, my research, I, I, you know, I traveled to places like uh, Holland and France. But I had the biggest aha when I went to, to Great Britain, and I realized that there were 140,000 African Americans who went to Great Britain during the war uh, just prior to D-Day. And uh, this was a very unique experience because you had African Americans coming from a segregated uh, society in America, and they travel across the Atlantic Ocean, and suddenly they're welcomed by white British citizens as Americans, as equals, and as helpers against the fight uh, against against Hitler. And I think, and, so, and I think part of the, I know what the the film focused on are those uh, dynamic relationships and kind of the the uh, cultural shock that African American soldiers went through uh, in in the UK. 
Yes, there, there, there was a, a bit of a cultural shock, culture shock because, as I said, they were not used to being accepted uh, by whites, being treated as equals. As a result, they were allowed, they, they interacted very freely with, with white British citizens. They, they went to their churches, they drank warm beer in their pubs, and in many cases they actually dated uh, British women, which was the, the focal point of a lot of the racial problems that, that came about in Great Britain. Now, Gregory, talk to us a little bit about uh, that clash between uh, America's Jim Crow society and British society, because the soldiers who went to fight in Europe and went to fight in the U.K. were leaving a, a, a segregated country in many parts, particularly in the South. And just like to get a feel for some of the things that you uncovered in terms of how they dealt with reconciling these are two different worlds, so to speak. Well, for the most part, um, I, I don't think it was as huge a problem for the black soldiers as it was for the white American soldiers. I mean, I think when they first, when black soldiers first arrived in Great Britain in uh, April of 1942, I think they were surprised by their treatment, and uh, they they were treated, like I said just like everyone else, but mostly as, as Americans, and they took advantage of that as soldiers will. But what happened, uh, white American soldiers, particularly those from the South, had a lot of problems with the interaction that they, that, uh, they witnessed between black soldiers and white British civilians. So as a result, you had a lot of fights. You had uh, fist fights, riots. There were two major riots in Great Britain, one in a place called Bamber Bridge and another one in Bristol where black where where black troops were killed so you had this ongoing level of violence and as a result the US military transplanted American Jim Crow to Great Britain and what that meant was that there were certain towns that were designated as all black towns or all white towns hmm. or when they couldn't separate things like that they would have a situation where maybe on Monday Wednesdays and Fridays Black soldiers would go into town on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and uh, on, on Tuesdays and Thursdays and Sundays. Maybe white soldiers go into town, and that was all designed to keep black and white soldiers apart. Because invariably, when they came together, there was violence. Hmm. Now, who are some of the soldiers uh, that both men and women that you profiled in Chocolate Soldiers? Well, uh, some of the, one one of the individuals was uh, Dr. Leon Bass, who's from Philadelphia, and he went to Great Britain in 19. He arrived in Great Britain in 1943, I believe it was, and um, for him it was an eye-opening situation. He he was from Philadelphia, which wasn't quite as segregated uh, racially as the Deep South, but it was still you know a segregated city. And so he arrived in Great Britain, and he really enjoyed himself. He was an educated man, so. Uh, when he had leave, he would go into London and check out the theater. And he also did things. He also had a relationship with a young woman uh, named Diane Coleman, as it turns out. And um, they, she took him home with her. He uh, met her parents. They liked him. And, um, you know, so it was a very positive experience for him. Um, we also had African-American women who were stationed in Great Britain. The 6,888th Postal Battalion, mm -hmm. uh, about 800 black women were stationed in Great Britain, and their job was to distribute, uh, to sort and distribute mail 
not only to the European theater, but to all of uh, all of Great Britain. And so these women um, also had similar kinds of experiences. They were invited into people's homes. They were invited, um, um, you know, to churches and what have you. Uh, one one woman who we profiled is uh, Mary Raglan, and she lives in Washington, D.C. area. And she talks extensively in Chocolate Soldiers about what they did and, and, and how well they were treated by uh, British. And, and speaking of uh, African-American women, I know that you're getting ready to start on another documentary that will focus solely on African-American women during World War II. And as with Chocolate Soldiers, a lot of these stories have been largely ignored over the years. But, but you'll be sharing information about the Rosie the Riveters, the civilian uh, workers, military nurses, and even government workers, of uh, which I understand your, your mother was, was a that group. Talk to us about these remarkable women and their service to our country and the sense of urgency that you actually feel to complete this uh, new film called Invisible Warriors soon. Well, Invisible Warriors, African-American Women in World War II, is about the, it's a, a cross-section of, of African-American women and, and the roles that they played contributing to America's war effort. There were about there were about 4,500 African-American women who went into the military. Most of them were waxed, but there were several dozen. There were, there were uh, 400-plus nurses. There were a handful of women who went into the Coast Guard and the Navy. And uh, so black women did play, a, did play a small but significant role in the, in, in the military. However, what's not generally talked about is the fact that there were 600,000 African-American women who either went into industrial work, meaning they, they, they went to places like, like Detroit where they built tanks and planes and jeeps, or they went into uh, government services um, that, had, that were still, that had been largely white prior to the war. My mother, for example, um, told me stories about how in 1943 she rode on her suitcase from uh, Norfolk, Virginia to Washington, D.C., and she went to work in the patent office. Mm -hmm. And she was one of these pioneering women who, um, because the war happened, all of a sudden there were these opportunities opening up for her and others. Uh, Traditionally, when there's this iconic image of Rosie the Riveter, and uh, when, the, when there's discussion about women in World War II, invariably it comes down to white women. But black women played a significant role, too. We're, we're you know, for example, um, some of the more notable women of World War II who made serious contributions were people like Lena Horne. Lena Horne was like a pinup for black GIs and some white GIs throughout, throughout the war years. But Lena Horne also was fighting for civil rights during that same time. And um, she had an incident in Fort Riley, Kansas, where uh, she came out to perform, and the first several rows were uh, occupied by German prisoners of war, and black soldiers were seated behind them. Mm. And she refused to perform. And she uh, went to the local NAACP and protested that. So she was fighting for civil rights and other things, and so she was more than just the pinup person that most people uh, know her as Maya Angelou um, became as a result of, of of the war. She became the first black uh, streetcar conductor in San Francisco. She um, she had finished high school 
and uh, she used to go to the personnel office every day, and they wouldn't give her an application. Hmm. And she sat there day after day reading books like you know by authors like Tolstoy until finally they they would give her, they gave her an application, and she got the job. So, uh, Invisible Warrior seeks to touch on the roles and contributions of African American women in a variety of uh, of functions during the war, and all of these women are um, are are pioneers, and in many cases they had to fight the double stigma of being black and female, mm-hmm. and uh, that was not an easy thing. And as far as Invisible Warriors goes, there is this urgency that we have. Uh, we're doing some things in, in a bit of an unorthodox way. We're, we're trying to get the the interviews first and foremost because. These these women are in their early 80s. The youngest ones are in their early 80s. Some of the nurses I've talked to and identified are 94 and 95 years old. Oh, my. Um, Dorothy Height, who um, was involved with the National Council of Negro Women mm-hmm. and, and uh, was executive director of the Phyllis Wheatley w, uh, YWCA in Washington during the war, uh, we've been in talks with talks with her, and she's going to participate. She's 97, hmm. so there is this urgency to get these interviews on on tape, uh, because once these people pass on, their stories go with them. And so, what I'd like to do is make an appeal to anyone who's listening. If you have a mother, a grandmother, aunt, or any female that you know who was probably in her early 80s or older. Ask them what did they do during World War II, and there's a good chance maybe they worked in an industry or in the government that had been uh, close to them prior to the war. And and if you know these people, please have them get in touch with me. And how would they find you, Gregory? Uh, they can. There's a variety of ways. We have a website um, at uh, http dot uh, uh, was it double slash invisible warriors black women ww two dot blogspot dot com. I'll repeat that. It's http dot double slash invisible warriors black women ww two dot blogspot dot com. And it's our it's our uh, blog page and it's a way of getting in touch right there. And it's it's also uh we're having a fundraiser uh on April twenty third at the Warner Theater in Washington um, and we'll have a private screening of chocolate soldiers from the USA. Um, advanced tickets are $250 per person, but it is tax deductible. And we're we're partnering with the National Association of American Veterans. Mm-hmm. You can also go to their website, and there'll be buttons on there that you can push to that'll lead you to um, the. Um, website for Invisible Warriors. Gregory, in our remaining time with put in context the larger civil rights movement and what was happening with respect to some of the challenges and some of the people that you are highlighting, because as uh, you mentioned, there were a lot of well-known people, uh, well-known African Americans who were out there on the front lines, and people who were not as well-known. Talk about their role and what they were doing. Well, I, I, I know that there were a number of organizations uh, involved in civil rights activities. For example, the the in, in the context of African American women, uh, the uh, black sororities were involved in all types of charitable country uh, charitable activities. 
they were holding uh, war. They they held war uh, bond drives, um, you know, to to ra- help raise money for for the wars. They and in, in, in many cities they got involved in helping to establish daycare centers for the women who were who were going off to to work in factories. Uh, for the most part, what you have here is just regular people who are not known and. These were the women and, and the and the individuals who were the backbone of the, of the civil rights movement and bringing about this change. Um, you know, um, in the context of black women, for example, in, in the 1940s, if, if you were a black woman and you weren't educated, uh, if you didn't have a college education, for the most part, uh, depending upon where you the part of the country you were in, your options for employment were largely based upon doing uh, service work you know, being a maid or a laundress or those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, the war, the people's civil rights activities, people um, helped, helped change that for these women. We had people like Mary McLeod Bethune, who, uh, who was a giant of a woman who, who became close friends with Eleanor Roosevelt. And the two of them together uh, did a lot of things to um, help further the civil rights movement. Um, a. Philip Randolph. Um, A. Philip Randolph actually called for the first huge march on Washington in 1940. And the whole idea was to um, get the government to open up um, uh, jobs in war industries for, for African Americans. The, the march never came off because uh, Franklin Roosevelt signed an executive order prohibiting discrimination in, in, in the war plants. But He's just another individual, uh, another named individual who was out there, um, you know, fighting for civil rights. Black mm-hmm. people in Hollywood, uh, Hattie McDaniel, who is best known as Mammy and, and, and going, gone with the wind, she was involved in um, civil rights activities and, and also going around and, and, and helping to entertain the troops. So you had this broad front, uh, you had this broad approach of, of African Americans, both known and unknown, doing all kinds of things to help with the war effort, but at the same time uh, fighting for civil rights. And, and, and in some ways, all of this was under this banner of the Double V campaign, which was started uh, by the Pittsburgh Courier, which was basically victory, victory overseas over Nazism and fascism and victory at home over racism and Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. And before we go, I have one last question for you. I know you uh, mentioned the fundraiser at yes. uh, the Warner Theater in uh, on April 23rd, I believe. Yes, it is. In uh, Washington, D.C. Yes. Are there other plans to um, uh, show a screening of uh, Chocolate Soldiers beyond April? Uh, not at this time. Um, we're, we're also looking at having fundraisers in uh, Los Angeles and New York City and Atlanta in 2010. The dates haven't been set for those yet. Uh, Chocolate Soldiers is, is still not completed yet. We have done all of the interviews, but there's mm-hmm. more that we want to do before um, its release. And, and I would like, also like to say that there's a third documentary we're working on simultaneously to this again we're under the same pressure it's called volunteers for freedom 2221 black gi's who change america hmm. so we're working on these three documentaries together and ultimately 
the goal is to, uh, once they're completed, the goal is to uh, give them away to uh, and make them ac- accessible free of charge to educational institutions and basically anyone else who, who wants them. Gregory Cook. Uh, documentary producer of a trilogy of stories that that really need to be told, Invisible Warriors, African-American Women in World War II, Chocolate Soldiers from the USA, and Volunteers for Freedom. Thank you very much for joining us today on the Traveling On radio show and and keeping the, uh, the stories alive. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you again for joining us today, everyone. We look forward to connecting with you during the week on Facebook and Twitter and, and uh, certainly we'll be tweeting a lot about the Winter Olympic Games as we're here. Uh, and you can also sign up for our newsletter and weekly travel deals at our website, travelnradio.com. That's N as in Nancy, travelnradio.com. It's been a pleasure to share some travel time with you today. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again next week same time same frequency and same place from the beautiful city of vancouver and until then leave positive footprints one step at a time